This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, everyone. My name is Harry Helley. I'm the executive director of the Birch Aquarium here at Scripps. I'd like to welcome you to the Jeffrey B. Graham Perspectives on Ocean Science Lecture Series. We have a very special guest for um, this evening. Our speaker is Dr. Goldie Phillips. Goldie Phillips is a postdoc doctoral researcher in the marine biological, the marine bioacoustics lab at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She graduated salutatorian from Livingston College in 2006 with a bachelor's in science in biology. As an international Fulbright scholar, Fulbright science and technology scholar, she went on to pursue her PhD in marine science and conservation at Duke, graduating in 2016. Her research interests include anthropogenic impacts on marine mammals and the use of passive acoustics to estimate the abundance of wild populations. She is currently investigating how various environmental, social, and behavioral factors affect the production rates of blue and finwell calls. And we are delighted to have Goldie here this evening for her talk entitled, Eavesdropping on Whales, How Whale Calls Inform Science. Please welcome Goldie. Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining me tonight. So let's get started learning about whales and sound. So one thing I just wanted to mention before I actually launch into the presentation, so I'm having a little bit of um, some technical issues, which requires me to click multiple times to get to the next slide, so please bear with me as I do that, okay? So to start off, I'm going to be talking about types of underwater sound. So the ocean is a noisy place. You have, you have sound from a variety of sources, and that includes natural sources. So in this case, I'm referring to natural non-biological sources. Um, so from in the polar regions, you would have, if you listen underwater, you would hear ice cracking underwater, and it sounds like this. Quite loud, right? <laughs> Again, you have, like, you, have, you have sounds from earthquakes, and here's another example of sound from rain, which is actually pretty common. So that sounds like this. So there are also sounds from biological sources. Um, so before I launch into examples of these types of sounds, I'm going to just talk briefly about what these sounds are used for. So biological sounds are used by marine organisms in general to communicate with each other, to navigate, find prey, attract mates, avoid predators, scare predators away, and for environmental awareness. And I'll go into specific examples of, of these as I go along. So here you see <laughs> pictures to the bottom right, some buffalo's dolphins, apparently mid-speech. you know, speech. And at the bottom left, you have like a stellar sea lion. So let's look at some examples of biological sounds. So before I get into the marine mammals, Let's take a look at other sources of sound, because some of you may not know that you actually have sound from quite a variety of um, marine organisms. So for example, you have um, sound from snapping shrimp. So snapping shrimp is what you see featured to the top here, and they sound like this. (laughs) 
So you see this sound, kind of like popcorn. And here it's, here it's not that bad, but if you are like working in tropical regions like I was for my PhD, they can be quite annoying. Um, <laughs> so the salmon shrimp, like the sound that you're hearing is actually generated. If you look at the picture, you see that they have like one gigantic claw compared to the next one. That sound that you're hearing is actually caused by them closing that claw really quickly. And what that does is it creates an air bubble that um, when it bursts, creates that loud sound. So you have like a lot of these shrimp making this sound in the background. And then you also have fish which produce sound. So here's an example from the oyster toadfish. <laughs> yeah, I know it sounds really weird. And then here's another example from the black drum. Fish actually produce sounds in a couple different ways, but in both of these cases, what's happening is that so the the fish have a lot of fish have swim bladders, which are these air-filled sacs, and adjacent to these swim bladders, they have these sonic muscles, which when contracted and relaxed really quickly, essentially like beat the swim bladder to make the sounds that you're hearing. So now we're getting into marine mammals. Um, so there are actually like different categories of marine mammals. Some of you may know. And one of them is pinnipeds. So by pinnipeds, I'm referring to three subcategories. So we have the ALS seals, which are also known as the true seals. And as the name indicates, they don't actually have ears. If you look at the picture, you can see it just looks like more like a hole in their skull. So an example of that is the bearded seal. And I chose the bearded seal. It's, not, it's usually found like further north in cooler waters. But I, they produce one of my favorite sounds. So I thought I'd play it for you. So that is called a trill, and it's actually a mating call. So it's produced by males. And then, of course, if any of you have been to La Jolla Cove, I'm sure you know the sound of the California sea lion. I just had to include them. Um, so they sound like this, just in case any of you haven't heard. Okay, so one thing I did want to point out, so remember I was telling you that the bearded seal doesn't have ears, like it just looks like a hole, but if you look at the California sea lion, they belong to the aired seal category. You see like little ears um, you, that are actually quite visible in this picture. So the third category of pinnipeds um, is the walrus, and you can see picture to the bottom right here, and they make sounds that sound like this. Sounding, right? Okay. So now we move on to the cetaceans. So some of you may know that you have two main, um, two types of cetacean species. You have the toothed whales, which as the name implies, um, refer to the animals that have teeth. And then you have the baleen whales. So there are a couple of key differences between these two species of whales. One of, the, well, as I just mentioned, one has teeth and the other has baleen. So let me just explain a little bit more about that. So baleen is what you see pictured um, in the, the mouth of the gray whale that you see here, which, by the way, if anybody is interested and you don't already know this, if you wanted to see a gray whale, they're actually migrating right now, so this is a really good time to go whale watching. 
So these these plates that you see in these like hair-like structures are actually made from the same material that your fingernails um, is made from, from keratin. So what this enables these animals to do is basically swallow like a gigantic mouthful of water and then filter the water out so they're only left with the food. So it acts like a strainer. So that's quite different from the lovely set of conical teeth we see here in this bottlenose dolphin's mouth. So, okay, so I'm going to play for you a couple of sounds that these two species produce. So one thing I did want to mention as well, another key difference, is that baleen whales don't produce echolocation clicks. Echolocation clicks are these broadband sounds produced by toothed whales, generally for navigation, um, for detecting prey, and I'm going to play you some examples of these. So the echolocation clicks sound like this. So dolphins, which you've seen at the bottom right here is the bottlenose dolphin, actually produce whistles as well. And an example of their whistles is here. And of course, I have to play the gray wheel for you. So this is an example of a gray wheel call, which is called Pong Pong. <laughs> I didn't name it, but this is what it sounds like. So you can kind of see where it got its name from. So one, one other call I wanted to play for you because I thought this had a pretty interesting story around it is the minky whale boing. So this is another type of um, mating call. And what I thought was interesting about this particular call is that this sound was detected by the Navy from like the 1950s. So like, like off the coast of San Diego in Hawaii, um, this call was detected and um, <laughs> the naval officers would wonder what's, was it like an enemy ship? They didn't know what the sound was. But it wasn't until 2002 when some scientists from Southwest Fisheries Science Center actually heard the sound and decided to follow the sound to figure out what was making this call because they were able to localize the sound um, using acoustics actually, which we'll get into a little bit later. And that's how they attracted to a minky whale, and they realized that a minky whale was producing this sound. And they actually discovered a breeding ground for minky whales. So this is what the boing sounds like. So I had to throw this one in because it's actually one of my favorite tooth whale species. Um, because you see this dolphin has like this, all of these lovely teeth. Um, but actually the narwhal is another example of a tooth whale, but they don't have a full set of teeth. They actually only have two teeth. And one of them is what you can see protruding out here. So they kind of, they, they dub the unicorn of the sea. Um, but this long tusk that you see here is just simply one of their, um, a, it's just a tooth that erupted from their upper lip and sort of corkscrewed its way out. This could actually grow up to like um, about nine feet in length, which is pretty impressive because these animals only get as big as like 15 feet. Um, so these animals are found in like really polar water. Um, and it's not really known for sure what these, these tusks are used for, but it's believed that they're used for like mating displays. And something that's really cool is that a couple of years it was discovered um, via drone footage. So basically a drone um, was just flying above these animals recording what they were doing. And we discovered another way they're using the, their tusks is to stun fish. So they were actually using their <laughs> tusks as a battering ram for Arctic cod. So they're like hitting the fish and the fish like didn't know what to do. We just made it like really easy prey for them. So I thought that was pretty interesting. So there's another reason they use this tusk. It's multifunctional. 
Um, so the males have them, and they're generally longer. Females could have them, but much fewer females would have these long erupted tusks. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so I didn't, I'm not going to go into details about other types of marine mammals, but there are other types of marine mammals. Um, the polar bear and sea otters all um, fall into this category, as well as the serenians. So some of you may be familiar with the manatee, which you can see pictured here in its lovely pose. And the dugong here, they, these are both part of the, the um, serenians, which are at the top here. They also, they also produce sound, but I'm not going to go into that today. So we're going to get to anthropogenic sounds. So we know that they are natural sounds that you can hear underwater. You know they are sounds that are produced by marine organisms. But they're also sounds that humans um, input into the ocean. So I'm going to play some examples of these. So one of them is the sonar, which the Navy typically uses, for example, to detect enemy submarines. So that sounds like this. And then, um, probably the most pervasive sound, well, it, the most per pervasive sound in the ocean is actually shipping and the amount of commercial ships um, that are using these different shipping routes are increasing. And as a result, the amount of sound that they're producing in the ocean is increasing as well. So this is an example of what shipping sounds like underwater from a commercial vessel. So as you can see, it can be quite loud. Another, the second, probably the runner-up um, in terms of how much noise it introduces into the ocean would be seismic surveys, which is what the oil and gas industry uses to search the seafloor for um, oil or gas um, deposits. So basically, this is depicted to the bottom left here. And what happens is that so you have like a boat that will be towing a series of hydrophones. Um, and this emits some really intense sounds that are directed towards the ocean floor. And those sounds hit the ocean floor, penetrate it, and are reflected back upwards. And the reflections are captured by a series of hydrophones, which I'll explain a little bit of, um, further on. But they are essentially underwater microphones. And the reflections of these sounds from the ocean floor give a picture of what the ocean floor looks like, what's below the ocean surface. And this is how the um, oil companies are able to locate where, oil, where to drill. But these sounds could be like really intense sounds. So this sounds, I'll just give you an example. So keep in mind, these sounds could be very intense, but the sound that you're listening is actually um, recorded from like miles away, so it's not going to sound very loud. So that's like air gun pulses that are being emitted. So. Why, why is sound important? Why do marine mammals use sound? Because sound is a key mode of communication, for example. They use sound for a lot of different aspects of their lives. Well, the reason for that is because sound is actually the most effective means of energy transmission in water. So when you compare it to, for example, chemical energy, chemical energy might only travel 100 meters. Light does like a little bit better, maybe like 200 meters or so, but this is the reason why the further you go um, below the ocean surface, the less you're going to see. So having the ability to use sound, for example, you know, we talked about echolocation clicks and animals using, dolphins using that in order to navigate is pretty useful. Particularly, for example, like if you have river dolphins, the water tends to be very murky and you can't see and they tend to be almost blind anyway. 
sound is actually a really good workaround for them. So sound could travel typically between like 10 to 100 kilometers, although this depends on a lot of different factors. But in the right conditions, sound can actually travel across ocean basins. <laughs> I thought this picture was really cute. I'm glad you like it too. <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about the types of threats that marine mammals face. So we talked about the different sources of noise in the ocean. Um, the, the, the noise that humans cause is a bit of a problem. Um, there have been certain impacts that have been documented. For example, behavioral changes. Um, so with behavioral changes, you have different types of behaviors that have been reported. Um, for example, you know, animals might vacate the area that seismic surveys are taking place in. So this might not be a big deal, but if the area that they're vacating is, for example, breeding grounds, this could be, you can see why this might be a, a huge problem. It can have population level consequences. Then there's also masking. So what is masking? So I thought the best way to explain what masking is, is to play this for you. So I want you guys, by a show of hands, to tell me, raise your hand if you hear, the, because you all are experts on bailing wheel calls now. So I want you to raise your hands if you hear the bailing wheel call within the sound that I'm gonna play. Okay, so I saw like a few hands go up, but I'm sure you can see the problem here. So what masking essentially is, is that when you have sounds that overlap in frequency, so they have similar pitch, and one is louder than the other one, the one that's louder is gonna mask the, the ability to detect the softer one. And this is, you, you can imagine, it's a huge problem for acoustic communication because imagine, just as it's difficult for most of you to detect bailing wheel calls, it's difficult for the bailing wheels as well. Um, so other impacts that noise could potentially have on marine mammals is hearing loss. This might be temporary or permanent, depends on you know, how intense the sounds are, for example. And then strandings. So there, there have been, um, so several beaked whale strandings have been linked to, or and sperm whale strandings have been linked to naval exercises, naval sonar exercises. So it's believed that these animals are particularly sensitive to sound, and that's probably because they're very deep divers. Um, and in deep water, sound tends to travel a little bit further. So that's, that's why it's believed. So the bottom you're seeing here, an example of a beaked whale, a gray beaked whale that was stranded. And then there are also other types of threats other than noise. So for example, you know, in the 20th century, there was extensive commercial whaling of a lot of different species. What you see in picture to the bottom left here is an example of a blue whale that was killed. Um, and some of you like, might not know, do you guys, have you guys heard of the right whale? Does anybody know why it was called the right whale? Exactly. It was, it was the right whale to catch because this animal is very slow and then when you kill it, it floats, which made it like, you know, it was one of the reasons why it was targeted. But as a result, even though whaling has been banned in the U.S., these population, a lot of populations are still struggling to recover. Um, the right whale in particular is, is extremely endangered. So then there's the problem of overfishing of krill. So, you know, you have different... Um, Krill is just one example of, like, this is a popular um, prey of baleen whale species. And what you can see here is a, a swarm of krill, which essentially look blown up like a little tiny shrimp. It's actually pretty nutritious. Um, 
So the problem is that humans also catch krill. I mean, we don't really consume krill, but what it's usually mean, used for is for baits or to feed like aquaculture. But we basically compete with the whales for their food. And it's not just krill. You know, you have other species that eat fish, and overfishing is generally a problem. So we are giving them competition for food. And then there's habitat loss and ship strikes. So this is a very sad picture you see into the bottom left here. That's a blue whale in Sri Lanka that was the victim of a ship strike. And it's a huge problem, um, especially for like whales like the right whale, which is known to be slow. They can't exactly get out of the path of a ship very easily. And then you have to the bottom right here an example of a humpback whale that was entangled in fishing gear. So unfortunately, there have been several marine mammal extinctions, and I'm just going to tell you like a little bit about them. And I, I mean, this applies to more than just marine mammal species, but for the purposes of this talk, I'm just going to talk about these. Um, so the stellar sea cow, you can see pictured to the top left here, was actually a lot bigger. This, these animals were about, look at the size relative to a man, was about 30 feet. So if, you can, if any of you have ever seen like a dugong or manatee in the wild, you know this is like way bigger than they, than they are, like the other, these other species are. Um, but this animal was hunted to extinction in the um, 1700s. And then to the bottom here, you have the Japanese sea lion, which was also hunted. This animal was hunted for its meat. It was hunted for oil. It was hunted to extinction in about the 1970s. So those two no longer exist. Um, and then we have the Caribbean monk seal, which you see pictured to the, the, the right here. And this animal was native to the Caribbean, which is actually where I'm from. Um, but they were hunted by humans. Um, they were also victim to overfishing. So humans overfished the food that they would eat, and you know, some of them died from starvation as well. So they no, no longer exist. They were extinct, I think, like in the 1950s or so. And then more recently, um, there's the, the Beiji dolphin, which is otherwise known as the Chinese river dolphin. Um, so this one is believed to be extinct, but it's not absolutely confirmed yet. Um, it hasn't been seen since like 2002. Um, but this, this animal faced, faced a host of threats, like you know the Yangtze River dolphin. Um, the Yangtze River is used for like a lot of you know a lot of like it has like a lot of human traffic. They were subject to pollution, um, a lot of competition. They had habitat loss. So this this it's unlikely that this species still survives. Then you have, unfortunately, other species that are heading down the same path as the Baiji. And one example is the vaquita. Some of you may know of this, this species. It's like a really small dolphin that you can see pictured to the, the bottom here. And it's, it's endemic to this area in the Gulf of California, to the northern part of this range. So the main problem is that this species, um, they are in a region that overlaps with the Totoaba fishery. So the Totoaba is this really large fish that is harvested for its bladder because its bladder is a delicacy in China. So it's illegal to fish for this, this fish, which is also endangered. But it's a huge problem of you know, poachers coming in and you know, setting gillnets to catch, the, to catch this fish. And the, the gillnets are what, what threaten the, um, the vaquita, because they get bycaught in the gillnets, and then they die, because they need to breed air. And if they can't come up for air, they'll die. So the Mexican government has been trying to be, you know, trying to be involved in you know, saving the species. They've assigned certain gillnet-free areas, but again, you know, poachers come in there because it's like a multi-million dollar industry. So they have a lot of incentive to keep fishing for Totoaba. 
So despite efforts, to the contrary, the population actually still continues to decline. So just some statistics. In 2015, there were only 60 animals left. In 2016, that was half. And in 2017, you actually have this Operation Milagro that's taking place, which is kind of an unconventional approach, but probably the most effective thing so far, which is sort of like spearheaded by the Sea Shepherd, where they actually go in behind the Totoaba fishery, and we draw the nets, which I'm sure you can imagine kind of causes some contention, but um, up to the, in 2017, they pulled their 200 illegal gillnet from the water. So, still doesn't look good. There's still not a lot of animals there left. So, and then just let's look at right off the coast of Southern California. You have blue whales. They are still endangered. We already talked about the North Pacific right whale. And then you also have the fin whale, which you see to the bottom left here, and the sperm whale, which are vulnerable. So they are like next up on the list. So there's a huge need for conservation measures to protect the animals that we do have left. So I'm going to talk a little bit about scientific solutions and mitigation measures and population management strategies that, that scientists employ that involve sound. So in a nutshell, what we seek to do is answer some basic questions. We want to know when are the animals there. Because if we know things like seasonal patterns or migration routes, for example, we could have shipping lanes moved to avoid the, the, the routes that these animals are going to be um, taking. If we know a particular habitat is important to these animals because it's their breeding, it's a feeding ground or a breeding ground, then we could establish reserves to protect those, those grounds. We need this information in order to feed conservation measures. Then we could also try to find out how many animals, because we know that overfishing of their prey is a problem. So knowing how many animals they, that they are feeding on is a very important thing. And then a lot of studies focus directly on how human activities are impacting animals. So one of so this could be looking at, for example, you know, behavioral responses to noise. Are they leaving important areas when seismic surveys um, start? Um, so that's one example. But my research focuses on this one here, which is figuring out how many animals are there. Now, this is a very fundamental question, but it's a very important one. Because, for example, you want to protect a species, like, for example, the Navy. And my research is actually funded by the living marine resources of the Navy. And they want to make sure that their activities are not going to impact animals. They want to minimize any impacts they have. So knowing how many animals are there and how those animals, that, that abundance changes, is very important to them. So in order to answer these questions, and this is not exhaustive. There are other questions as well, but it kind of like covers a lot of them. They, um, in order to answer these questions, scientists employ a wide variety of methods. And they're not all acoustic. So you have a lot of visual observation methods, um, which are very useful because this is how we knew that it was a minky wheel that was making that sound, because we followed them and we saw the minky wheel. Um, so what you see in the picture to the bottom right here is actually something that's very typical. Um, a lot of times, these um, dolphin species and the whale species, but for the whales, they use like their flukes. They tend to. They, like on your dorsal fins, they have like, like unique nicks and notches that if you photograph it and you blow it up, you can actually identify animals. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that because I actually use this to my advantage from my dissertation research. So what you're seeing is a scientist um, taking a picture of an animal as it, as it goes by. So this is called photo ID. And then, of course, there is marine bioacoustics. 
Um, but there are actually two categories of marine bioacoustics, and I'm going to go into detail shortly. So one is active acoustics, and the other one is passive acoustics. What does that mean? So let's start with active acoustics. So active acoustics um, simply involves the projection of sound into the ocean. It's very similar to um, how oil companies explore um, the, the ocean floor, except that the sounds we're producing are not nearly as loud as the sounds that they're producing because it doesn't need to penetrate that deep. Um, echolocation clicks actually work in a very similar manner because what happens is that when dolphins produce echolocation clicks, it bounces off of whatever's in the vicinity, and it, by listening to the reflection and getting the feedback, they, could get, they basically get a picture of what's in front of them. So that's how they can use it to navigate. This kind of works in the same way. So you have a ship, and you have an echo sound, and it's, it's sending um, sound into the water column. Again, it's not trying to penetrate um, below the surface of the ocean floor. What we're trying to get a picture of is what's in the water column. So what happens is that the things that are in the water column, like fish and krill and the seafloor, would be reflected back backwards. And um, the reflections and how long those reflections take to get back to the receiver can tell us a lot, basically paint a picture for us about what's in the water column. So here we're looking at a patch of krill, which we already know looks like a little shrimp, which you see to the, the bottom here. So if, for example, I wanted to know how many how much krill was in an area, and that was like an important feeding ground for a particular baleen whale species. And I could just go out here and sample, and then I could measure the volume of this amount of krill and have a good idea of how many krill was out there, how much krill is out there. So then there's also passive acoustics, which is sort of more my area of expertise, or eavesdropping. So as the name indicates, it simply involves the passive listening of sound. So we're not projecting any sound, we're just listening to sound, which has the advantage that it's non-invasive, um, and it's also because of how efficiently sound can travel in the ocean, it can cover large spatial scales, and we, it's possible to, like, certain, for certain types of instruments, be recording for months at a time. We, we can have autonomous instruments, which are going to in a little bit, um, where we could record for really long periods of time to get lo nice long time series of sound, which is really helpful if, for example, we're trying to get an idea of seasonality for species presence. And it's often more economical. So... How we eavesdrop. So now I'm going to get too technical. I'm just going to tell you the one thing that all passive acoustic equipment have in common, and that is the, the hydrophone. So we already talked about the fact that the hydrophone is simply like an underwater vision of a microphone. So all this does is it just receives, it receives sound waves, and it converts it into electrical energy. Now, typically, what, this, what happens is that this is fed into a circuit board, and this continues to some kind of device which usually would involve a lot of batteries. For example, if it's something that's going to be deployed for months at a time, you need something to power the system. And also hard drives, because um, passive acoustic data could be quite sizable. So you typically need some, something to store the data that you're collecting. So hydrophones in action. So we're going to talk about like some of the main ways. So there are different ways that hydrophones can be configured um, for, in order to listen to sound, to listen to marine mammals. So whatever they be used for. Um, so one example is you can just have like a ship, and the ship is towing hydrophones. You, could, you probably might remember this is kind of similar to the seismic survey, um, that surveys that we see. But this actually could allow us having multiple hydrophones. It's really helpful because it's how we can localize, can help us to localize sound. So this is actually how they found the minke whale that I talked about before. They actually had a, a, an array that they were towing, I believe. And that's how they were able to localize the sound and track the whale. So 
this instrument that you see here is called a high frequency recording package. Fancy name, but this is actually what I've been using for my research. So what you're seeing here also has a hydrophone, but this is the hydrophone here. So all you're seeing here is uh, the mooring. It's like you have like several floats, and those floats are designed to help the instrument. Okay, so at the bottom here, which you, you can't see too clearly, there's actually a weight that keeps the instrument anchored to the seafloor. So what happens, we go out on a boat, we drop the instrument or whatever, um, wherever you want to drop it. We're going to leave it out there for months at a time. And then when we're ready to collect the instrument, we send a signal because it ha this actually has an acoustic release device that will cause the connection to leave to break, leaving the weights at the bottom. And then all of the floats will cause this to surface and then we just grab it. So that's how we recover it and then we, we get the data from the hard drives. So for the ones that I'm using, no, it's going to be like single instruments. But just like Mirma was telling you that when you have multiple hydrophones, it's, it's possible to localize them. If you wanted to localize animals, which has been done, you can simply put multiple arrays or just have more hydrophones on that same one in order to be able to localize them. Okay, and then the middle one here is fairly recent. So this is what you, this is a glider. So if you notice, like this one is like stationary. You just drop it to the seafloor. It stays there. When you're ready, you just pick it up. This one is like moving behind a, a boat. You're towing it. This one is pretty cool because you, it moves, except that it's also autonomous. So it's like a little robot that goes through the water. So it, they typically follow like a zigzag pattern. So they go up and down the water column. And these things can be equipped with a lot of different sensors. So they can inform um, oceanographers on like they can have sensors like temperature, salinity, and this is, and they can essentially map these different variables as they travel, whatever is along their path. Um, but you can also equip them with passive acoustic sensors, and it's actually like just recently, fairly recently, um, um, been explored, like we are starting to attach sensors to this and using this as another way of monitoring marine mammals. Another way is, so we talked about things that just sort of like do their own thing, just leave them there and then just get the data after, right? But then there's also a different type of device called an acoustic recording tag. Remember, all of these things have the hydrophone in common. So this, what you're seeing here, is an example of one of these tags. So in this case, it attaches directly to the whales. And it's attached, it's attached by these suction cups. So this is much more short-term um, because they probably would, the longest they would stay on for is a few days, maybe. And sometimes you can get them on for like 30 minutes, which usually kind of sucks because it involves a lot of effort to get them on. And I'll show you an example of that. Um, so just like with the glider that we saw, these things can be equipped with like a lot of different sensors. So of course the hydrophone, which is what allows us to record the sound. And then we have, they might have like pressure sensor, uh, pressure sensors. And this is important because one of the things we like to get from the tag data is dive behavior. So with pressure, you can measure depth and you can track like you know, the depths that the whale was traveling at, which is important because one of the behaviors that we have noticed about whales, especially for deep diving whales, is that their dive behavior changes when they're exposed to sound. For example, the beak whales. So that's one of the reasons why scientists study this. And then orientation. So if you want to know if it's like rolling or whatever it's doing, you also have orientation sensors, typically on these hydrophones. So here to the bottom left is an example of one that's stuck onto a humpback whale. And that's what it looks like, but it's not that easy to get it on there. So I'm going to show you an example 
I need to fast forward a little bit of how this was deployed. So this is a video that was actually taken um, by, um, this is part of research from the Johnson Lab at Duke University, and it was, they were tagging humpback whales in Alaska to study the foraging ecologies. So they wanted to study, you know, how these whales were feeding and what they were feeding on. However, to get closer to the whales and to maneuver around them easier, this small inflatable zodiac was used. Researchers slowly approach whales at the surface from the zodiac in order to attach a multi-sensor digital acoustic recording tag, also known as a D-tag. This is the device that records any information that can be collected about the whale and its behaviors. The tag is friction fit into a carbon fiber pole and is non-invasive. It is attached to the top or dorsal side of the whale in front of the dorsal fin by four suction cups. The tag contains a vast array of recorders and sensors that will eventually provide all the data necessary to allow researchers to visually reconstruct the whale's dive profiles in a 3D visualization, as we will see later in this video. Those recorders and sensors include a 3-axis accelerometer that measure the pitch, roll, and heading of the whale, a magnetometer, a pressure sensor to record depth, and a hydrophone to record underwater sounds. The tag is programmed to come off after a predetermined amount of time up to 24 hours. The tag contains a radio tracking device as well, so researchers can keep track of the whale at the surface. This is accomplished using what is called a Yagi antenna. The next step is to deploy the Simrad EK60 scientific echo sounder from the side of the vessel. A crane is used to deploy the echo sounder, which measures the presence of the whale's prey, or food. The echo sounder is like the scientific version of a fish finder. The transducers, which you can see are the bright orange structures mounted on the stainless steel toe body of the echo sounder, send out high frequency sounds at 38 kilohertz and 120 kilohertz as the echo sounder is towed behind the vessel. As the vessel follows the tagged whale in a close vicinity, the sounds sent out from the transducers bounce off of prey objects in the water column, and those echoes are received by the echo sounder in various strengths. The different strengths of the return data allow researchers to visualize the different densities of prey available below the surface. As we will see in a couple of minutes, it also allows researchers to see which patches of prey are targeted by the whale when the data from the echo sounder is visualized in combination with the data from the D-tag. So this also um, shows you an example of how the echo sounder, which is active acoustics as we were talking about, this is how we project sound into the, the ocean. So this is one example. Okay. So now I'm going to go into what we do with the data that we collect from all these different um, instruments. Okay, so if you talk to any acquisition or bioacquisition, what, what they'll tell you probably is that one of the things that we like to do is to visualize sound is to make plots that look like this. So what you're looking at here is called a spectrogram. So on the x-axis, you have time, and on the y-axis, you have frequency. And the signals that you record are shown here. So here we have an example of bee whale, um, <laughs> of blue whale <laughs> reproductive calls, um, A and B calls, and I'll tell you a little bit about those in a second. But for now, I just want you to focus on like the colors that you're seeing. You see that some colors are like a little bit warmer. So the warmer colors simply indicate the louder parts of the call or like the more intense parts of the call. Um, so we talked about, you know, um, reproductive display, like sounds that are used for reproduction. I'm sure you guys know that, you know, blue whales, a lot of baleen whales produce sounds. So in this particular case, these, these songs are produced only by the males of the species. 
And what you basically have is that these repetitive patterns of alternating A and B calls. So this is what the A call looks like, and you can see it's like sort of like a pulse um, sound. So this is like just one single A call, and it sounds like this. Then you have the B call, which is more of like a tonal call. So that sounds like this. So this is really helpful because, you know, this is just one particular kind of sound, but sounds in general tend to have really distinct patterns. So like without even listening to the sound, you could just look at the spectrogram and if you know what to look for, you could be like, oh, that's a blue wheel. Like, no, I have seen lots of blue wheel calls, so I know that's a blue wheel from looking at this. Um, and then another thing that's, that's also helpful is that you get the whole, like, well, I mean, it depends on, you get the whole frequency range, because the thing is, when you get older, you lose your high-frequency hearing. So when you're listening to, like, higher-frequency sounds, um, it's good to be able to see it if you can't hear it. <laughs> so it comes in pretty handy for that as well. It doesn't really apply in bailing wheel cases, um, well, except if it's below 20 hertz, because humans typically hear between 20 hertz and 20 kilohertz. Okay, so now we're going to listen to an example of a humpback whale song. And instead of just playing the, song, the sound for you, I'm going to show you the spectrogram, because now you all know what a spectrogram is. Then, so what we, kept, we kind of dipping a little bit into my dissertation research. Um, I wanted to mention this because I think it's a pretty cool um, component of, of this particular population. So bottlenose dolphins, some of you might know, produce um, different types of sounds. We know they produce whistles, but they also produce a specific type of whistle, this, this stereotype calls, called signature whistles. So signature whistles are believed to function in... Um, maintaining group cohesion and it's used to um, function in unique, unique identification. So, for example, you know, dolphins meeting each other, two different groups of dolphins meeting each other would probably exchange, have been known to exchange um, signature whistles. Um, so, the good thing about this is that, remember, I told you that dolphin species tend to have like unique nicks and notches in their fins. So, like, I could be out there and it's, it's, this animal is actually called Merrily because it was a, this is the Sarasota bottlenose dolphin population. And it's like a really small community of about 100 and something dolphins. And they actually, they've been studied for like over decades. And there's like a photo ID catalog. So I could go out there and I'd be like, oh, this is Merrily, based on like the shape of the fin and the notches. And then I could listen to sounds. And I would look at the spectrogram. I'd be like, oh, this is also Merrily. So this was actually very helpful because it helped me to distinguish between animals just looking at the spectrogram. So. Now I'm going to play for you um, the coda, which is produced by the sperm whales. The sperm whales don't produce whistles, but they have these patterns of clicks that they produce. They also produce echolocation clicks, but they also produce this other type of sound, which is believed to encode like um, clan identity information, or also, not more recently, unique um, identification information as well. 
So this is just one example. Okay, so there's something else, another animal whistling. It's not the whistle. <laughs> it was like the long vertical lines, okay? Okay, so this is just to show you um, an example of, remember we talked about being able to get dive profile data from the tag data. So this is an example of this, and this is actually from a, a blue whale that was part of, this, of the research that I'm doing here. So what you're looking at here is depth on the y-axis, and on the x-axis you have time. So all of these color dots you see here are where calls were made. Um, so this would include AB calls, which we know are the song, the calls that make up songs for blue whales. So what you can notice here is that all of these calls are all around the same depth at about like 20 to 30 meters, which is pretty interesting. So blue whales call at relatively shallow depths, and it's, it's fairly consistent. So again, so we can know, you know, we could get information on animal dive behavior and using this tag data because it's stuck to the animal and we could follow them through time, get a better sense of how they're using their habitats, get a better sense of their migratory patterns. So now we're gonna talk a little bit more about what my research is about and how I apply passive acoustics to actually estimating how many animals they are. And I'm gonna ask you guys to be involved in this. Okay, so. We have a huge group of common dolphins that you see here. So what if I asked you how many animals are in the group? Not how many animals you could see. How many animals are in the group? Do you think that you're gonna be seeing, you're gonna be able to tell me how many animals are in the group? Right, you're not, probably not gonna be able to unless you're like really good. Um, because you're gonna have animals submerged. If you stand like here, you're probably, not gonna, you're probably gonna miss some animals that are way over there. So the thing is, okay so, okay, so we don't know how many animals are in the group, but what if I told you that the animals that you do see um, represent half of the animals that are within the group? Then could you tell me how many animals were in the group? Yeah, because you just divide by a half and you'd be like, okay, I see 30 animals, let's pretend it's 30 animals there. Then you could be like, I have 60 animals in that group. So that's one, so that, that number, that half, is one of the things that I am working on figuring out, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. But for now, I want to point out one other thing that's passive density estimation process, which could be kind of difficult to get. So now we're looking at these dolphins, and we can just count them. We can say one, two, three, and you can, if you have a lot of time, you can count all of these animals. But what happens when you can't do that, and I, I, you instead have just the acoustic recording? So I'm gonna play this and I want you guys to tell me how many animals are here. Not how many whistles, how many animals. So, anyone? <laughs> two? Okay, okay. Why do you say two? There, there were two different sounds of whistles. So like one animal is capable of making different types of whistles. The problem is that you don't really know. So it could be like one animal just like having a party all by itself and making a whole bunch of calls. Or it could be two animals or three animals. The problem is that you don't really know just using acoustic data only. 
So the uh, part of the challenge is this is typically the case when you have um, like passive acoustic recordings, like especially if you have like one recording, you can't actually localize the animal. Is figuring out how many animals are there. So fortunately, you don't actually have to figure it out because there's a workaround. So what you can do, and this is where tag data comes in. So from the tag data, I have it on one animal, and I could, I'm following this animal around. So I'm like saying, okay, um, this animal makes three whistles per second. Then if I go back to my clip here, and I say, okay, I de detected nine whistles, and this animal typically um, makes three whistles a second, I'd be like, okay, there were three animals there. And then I could figure it out. So it's like an indirect way of figuring out how many animals were there. Everybody understand? Okay, so this is essentially what I've been working on. Um, so to estimate abundance, I'm trying to figure out what proportion of animals I'm detecting because I need to know how much to adjust my count by. Now, this depends on many factors. So we talked about masking, and we know that noise can actually play a role in your ability to detect sounds. And this is actually really important. So I'm trying to incorporate this into the process. Distance also makes a difference. We also talked about this. Because remember I said, going back to this picture, if you stand here, you're probably gonna get all the ones that you're seeing right here, but you're probably gonna miss some that are far away from you. So the further away you go, and this also applies to sound, the further away you go from your detector, the less likely you are to detect animals. So basically what I'm doing in order to try to figure out the proportion of animals I'm detecting is using sound propagation modeling and simulations to try to get to this number, which is more difficult than it sounds. And then the other part of it was figuring out what rate the animal, and one animal would be producing calls at, because I don't know how many animals are from just listening to a whole bunch of sounds. So this is the other, this is the other big part of the density estimation process. How do you go from tag data to the HAP data? So, so we talked about the HAP, the tag data being one, that's how I could figure out my call rate. But the thing is, I'm trying to apply this to figure out how many animals are detected at a site that had this instrument deployed on it. So some things, okay, so when you're using these call rates, you want to make sure that um, the rate that you're using is directly applicable, which is usually not as simple as it sounds. So what you can do is use a statistical model. So basically, I use my tag data here to build a model in order to predict what my call rate would be in the situation I actually once applied for, which is the HAP data. So for example, I know that um, I found that, um, that whales call at a faster rate during the night rather than at day, during the day. So I was able to apply that to my HAP data in order to get a query that was more applicable to this particular data set. So that is essentially what I'm doing as part of my postdoc. So to recap, we learned a lot of things today. Um, marine mammals face many threats. Um, and we know that passive acoustics is invaluable to marine mammal conservation for a variety of reasons. One, sound is a key aspect of marine mammal behavior. Two, sound travels very efficiently underwater. And we know that you know, due to having a variety of instruments, we can get long-term continuous data collection, for example, if we use the HAP, or we get short-term, highly detailed data using a variety of sensors if we were to use the tags. Um, and using multiple instruments, we can achieve like a range of goals, such as identifying habitat use patterns and abundance estimation. So I talked about what scientists do to try to solve the problem of 
um, marine conservation to try to, to mitigate any impacts that we have on marine, organism, on marine mammals, but we all can play a role. So I have three suggestions that I'd like to leave you guys with, and I'm sure this probably applies to some of you already, and if it does, just completely ignore what I'm saying right now. But um, volunteering is like a really important part um, of conservation, so a lot of organisms like Birch included, um, organizations rely on volunteers to get a lot of work done. For example, Southwest Fisheries Science Center, they have a grey whale program where they try to monitor grey whales as they pass by and they rely heavily on volunteers. Um, of course, donation because research is expensive. <laughs> and then education. Now this is a big part of it. So I want to ask you guys to share the things that you've learned because increasing public awareness is very, very crucial to you know, conservation in general, to achieving the goals that we settled for. So with that, I'd like to thank you for listening and take any questions that you have. So we have time for a few questions, and if we could ask you, Goldie, to repeat the question so it gets recorded, and I'll pass this to whoever would like to ask the question. You seem to have trouble with uh, masking. Is there a way that you can unmask using spectral analysis to uh, weed out the things that are not the whale sounds or the animals you're interested in? I mean, you can always clean up the data, but there's only so much you can do. Like, if the sound is really loud, then you just, you just can't use it. I mean, it's some, sometimes if, you, if a sound is, like, partially masked, you might be able to detect it, but sometimes it can't be helped. Um, but animals actually have, like, their own way of dealing with masking. Um, for example, you know, when I mentioned, masking happens when sounds overlap in frequency. So one of the compensatory mechanism, mechanisms that these animals use would be to shift their frequency. So they might go higher or lower than a sound to avoid the problem of um, communication. Yeah, the Navy obviously has a whole bunch of hydrophone data. Do they let you have some of their hydrophone data? That's a great question. They have them all <laughs> over the world, right? That would be nice, they but it's actually... They submarines, all kinds of stuff. Yes, yeah, so actually the Navy has, like, tons of hydrophones that they have just sitting on the, the seafloor, but it's not that easy to access it. You have to go through a lot of paperwork and to get access to that type of data. Is, um, I really enjoyed your presentation. Thank you. Um, is anyone here, yourself included, doing passive acoustic work on the North Pacific right whales? You mentioned how endangered they are, and we don't even know much about their habitat. So I don't know of anyone who is actively working on that right now. But um, we have like a lot of hops deployed throughout like the Southern California Bight, so the data is sitting there. But nobody is, like, to my knowledge, actively working on that analysis right now. Okay, yeah. S Southern California Bight, they're not going to come and visit us too often, but thank you. Within the pods, are there different voices from different animals? I mean, if we speak, we cannot be identified by our voice. Can the animals in a pod be differentiated? So that's a difficult question to answer. Um, I'm sure that they can differentiate amongst themselves. Um, but we do know, like, for example, with the signature whistles, um, that's a way that we can differentiate. It's kind of like their different voices that they're speaking with that allow us to distinguish between them. Um, now we know that codas, for example, can also contain identity information. Um, for, but for the most part, we can't distinguish between them that way. 
So for certain primate calls, I know it's um, they to a certain extent mean things. Like some primate calls might be purely for mating, and some might signal predators to other primates. Do we know whether certain types of whale calls mean anything? Are they warning each other of predators, or are they all for mating displays? Okay, so we most of what we understand about the um, the purposes, the the functions of different whale calls, we understand from observations that are taking place simultaneous with passive acoustic recordings. So we do know, we do know like, for example, like, you know, like with whales, we know that, you know, they tend to produce a lot of songs on like their breeding ground. So that's how we learn to associate like AB calls, for example, with breeding. But in terms of like, for example, like baleen whale aggression calls, like I can't tell you of any specific aggression calls, but we know like, we know we have a good sense of what calls are used for reproduction. Um, and what types of calls it might use for, like, communication in general. Hi, I really enjoyed your talk. I've got a question. Um, you mentioned uh, spectral data and the analysis of it. Are you using anything like machine learning or uh, data science to try and derive more information out of what you've gathered? Okay, so that's a great question. Um, so definitely, because as I mentioned before, this data could be quite sizable. Imagine we have like data that's been collected over 10 years from many different instruments, and not just any Southern California bite. We have instruments all over the world. So yes, data science and machine learning come in very handy. Um, we do have um, a, different, a number of different types of detectors that we use. For example, with the blue whale, one type of blue whale call called the D-call, we use a general power law detector to automatically um, detect signals. And then we have a man <clears throat> an analyst go through and just get rid of the false detection. So we do have automatic detectors that we can use. And we're working on more. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us, spending your evening with us this evening. Thank you, Goldie. You're welcome. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.